verse by verse, chapter by chapter, some explanations, applications. What we've seen throughout the Bible, and especially in Zechariah, is that God rules over all the nations, including Israel, and not just Israel. Raises up some, takes some down, and the Bible talks about this. God protects his people from various enemies. So we look back, not only in biblical history, but in the rest of history, and then prophecies such as Zechariah and Daniel predicted some of those rise and falls of empires in the near future. By way of recap, chapters 1 to 7 had a lot of apocalyptic visions of the future with unusual dreams. Now in the second half, you get prophecies without those apocalyptic metaphors of different color horses and what about that one about a woman inside of a big basket? That was not an unusual one. wonder how a children's picture Bible would portray that. I did see a picture of that once. But um, all these prophecies are still infallible. Many have come to pass. Some are still awaiting fulfillment. God not only foreknew these things, therefore he predicted them. But he predestined everything, and he carries out his predestination through providence. Think of it like this. Predestination prepares providence. Providence fulfills predestination. Okay, first verses 1 and 2. The burden of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus its resting place for the eyes of men, and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord, also against Hamath, which borders on it, and against Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Uh, That phrase, burden of the word of the Lord, is found a few times. Um, This is like saying an oracle from God that's very important. Listen, attention. And it's a burden that the prophet had to give. Now, sometimes we feel like that, like I've just got a witness to someone, or God's put a burden on my heart to pray for someone. If so, do it. And so here we find God giving these prophecies and rebukes to Hadrach and Damascus, and then later Hamath. These were um, cities up north. Let me also mention this, talking about these are prophecies concerning Syria, Lebanon to the north, just like other ones had given similar prophecies to the northeast, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. And then later it gets down to the rebuke of uh, the nations of the cities around Philistia to the southwest. So it's like north, south, east, and west. And those were prophecies to those nations as well as to Israel. And you find that to a lesser extent in the other prophets. Most of the prophecies in the Bible are directed to God's people. Israel and the old, the church and the new, and the overlap of the two. Uh, And a few, such as Jonah and parts of Isaiah and Jeremiah, prophecies to the neighboring countries. But there's a difference. The prophecies to God's people, as we will see here, includes rebuke and warning, but also promise. To the Gentile nations, there were very few promises, but there were a few. It says in the book of Isaiah, the uh, isles, the islands, wait for God's promises. Now here's a lesson. Um, 
we are not prophets, but when I preach, I preach mainly to believers, but always something for the unbelievers. When you witness, you witness to unbelievers, but you mainly talk with other Christians. Okay, Hadrach and Damascus were in Syria to the north, and so there's this warning. And it says, everyone was looking to see what the God of Israel would do. These other nations had known, they claimed to have the one true God. And you remember when the Israelites came out of the wilderness into Canaan, Rahab and the others said, we've heard about what your God did. And they were afraid. So over the hundreds of years, the other nations said, well, what about this? God, what'd you call, what's his name? And, um, but they were listening not necessarily repenting. Does America and do the other nations in the world today look to God to see what he's doing? Look at this. It says, all the eyes of men and all the tribes of Israel are on the Lord. They're looking and listening with both ears. I wonder if the tribes of Israel, what about the states of the United States, the kingdoms in the United Kingdom, the members of NATO and the European Union, or how many of them, you go, if you went to the United Nations and knocked on doors and said, excuse me, are you, are you listening and looking to God? They'd probably say, get out of here. No, most of them are not. We should pray that they do. And uh, then at the end of verse 2, it mentions Tyre and Sidon, even though they're very wise. Now, these were prosperous um, cities, part of Phoenicia, which was north of Israel, so you see it's going to different countries up there. God had opposed the Phoenicians and these other ones for siding with Assyria and Babylon when those countries came from the east and attacked Israel. These others just stood back and said, well, none of our business. They didn't side with Israel, and so God says, you didn't side with, with my people when they needed you, so I'm going to go after you. There's an old saying in the Middle East that's still valid today, my friend's enemy is my enemy and my enemy's friend is my enemy. Uh, and so that's what you see here. You were friends of God's enemies, so you're God's enemies. Just apply that today. Those that attack the church are God's enemies. Whatever happened to Tyre and Sidon? Well, God overthrew them as he did Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and then later Greece and Rome. And then later the Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Third Reich, the Soviet Union. God overthrows all these eventually. Bigger they come, the harder they fall. Uh, what's in store for the United States? We're fools if we think, oh no, we'll never fall. You remember Edom said that and Obadiah had to rebuke them, basically saying the bigger they come, the harder they fall. You are so big, you're going to come with a big thud. And then God will eventually overthrow all the kingdoms of the world at the second coming. So some of these have a near fulfillment, other ones an eventual fulfillment. It says in the book of Revelation, the kingdoms of this world has, have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Verse 3, Tyre has built herself a tower, like the Tower of Babel, heaped up, or like the Twin Towers, heaped up silver like the dust and gold, like the mire of the streets. Behold, the Lord will cast her down. He will destroy her power in the sea and she will be devoured by fire. And it came to pass. God overthrew Tyre and Sidon, just like these other nations, even though it says that they are wise and wealthy. Doesn't, doesn't matter when you're up against God. 
these countries and these cities were the big powerful cities of the day, kind of like today. You think of New York, London, Paris, Rome, even Moscow. Doesn't matter to God. Kingdom of God is more important to him. And uh, so wealth and paganism is no protection against God's vengeance. Notice it says her. Some nations speak of their nation as feminine, like Mother Russia. Other ones it's masculine, like Uncle Sam, John Bull, or the fatherland of Germany. And it's like for many decades they named hurricanes after women's names, and then the feminists cried foul, and now they alternate male and female, like Hurricane Hillary hitting Southern California at this very moment. Anyway, one of the lessons we learned from this is that the problem that these nations were facing wasn't financial, even though they didn't take care of the poor, as we read in the book of Amos. The problems were spiritual, not financial, So people today say our major problem in the United States is financial, the poor people, and so forth. Still remember Jesse Jackson, when he ran for president, he says, our major problems is to feed the poor people. That's the way he'd say, the poor people. That's our major problem. And most politicians say, they better say that's the major problem, or they're not going to get reelected, so they support all sorts of giveaway problems. But they're wrong. The problem in facing America and any other nation like these is never just financial, it's spiritual. For example, one of my heroes of the 20th century was General Douglas MacArthur. Anybody ever heard his farewell speech to Congress? Some of you remember John Furrow. Did you know he went to West Point and became a captain? He memorized that speech, as did most people at West Point. And toward the end of his speech, General MacArthur very wisely said, our problem as a nation is not military or financial. He says, our problem is theological. And did you know that after World War II, he was a governor general of Japan during the occupation? And he said, send in the missionaries, and the Bible translators. They need to hear about Christianity. Vic, I see you nodding your head. That was very important to the rebuilding of Japan. How many of those in the, pres- in the current presidential campaign would say our major problems are not financial, It's not protection from terrorism, but it's theological. Let's go back to the Lord. They're not going to get many votes saying that, but they should. There are a few candidates that would say that. I'm reading the autobiography of Mike Pence, very evangelical, and he says, our nation needs to return to God. Well, good for Mike Pence. You'll get that from a couple of the others. They're in the minority. They'll be made fun of. It says, the Lord will cast her down. He'll destroy her power in the sea. She'll be devoured by fire. And some of these cities were burnt down. Verse 5, Ashkelon will see it in fear. Gaza also should be very sorrowful. Ekron, for he dried up her expectation. The king shall perish from Gaza, and Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. These are three cities in Philistia, the land of the Philistines. And it's from that that the Romans, when they took over that part of the world, changed the name from Israel to Palestinia in, uh, in Latin. And that became, and some still use the term Palestine, the Palestinians. Palestinians are descendants, curiously, not of the Philistines and not of the Canaanites. 
Who are they descendants from? They're Arabs, just like their neighboring countries. Only the extremists, like Mara Gahana late years ago, said we should wipe out the uh, Palestinians because they are descendants of the Canaanites. And didn't God say come in and wipe them all out? Well, I'm sorry, they're not descendants of the Canaanites or the Philistines. They're Arabs, not, you look at family trees in the Bible. Anyway, these also are given judgment, just like the cities to the north. And so, well, how did this happen? God is saying, I'm going to send in invading armies that will conquer these cities, nations to the north, and those to the southwest. Of course, other prophecies about those to the southeast, like Edom, Moab, and so forth. But God was letting them come in, but they bypassed Jerusalem. Very interesting. In history, they came in from the north, and for some untold reason, they said, well, leave Jerusalem. Let's go down to the Philistines now. Here's another principle. Uh, these armies greatly outnumbered these other cities and Israel, and certainly Jerusalem. Today, Satan's forces outnumber and surround us, but God outnumbers and surrounds them. I remember preaching on that in the open air. Huge crowd, about 150 people. And they outnumbered me, and they were heckling and throwing pennies and barking dogs and throwing half-full cans of beer. You ever have that? You know, It's hard to duck those, because they kind of go like this, and they were laughing, and They were laughing, and I said, you've got me outnumbered. God's got you outnumbered. He's got you surrounded, so you better surrender. And I preach with great gusto. Preachers, that'll preach, right, Brother Vic? They got us outnumbered. We're always a small flock, as Jesus called us. says in Zechariah, we're just a remnant. But God's got them outnumbered. Remember, he keeps saying he is the Lord of hosts. Besides, even if he didn't have angels, he's got them outnumbered. God is infinite. Verse 6, a mixed race shall settle in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. So there are these three cities. And God says he'll cut off their, their pride. By the way, it says a mixed race. Um, that might be translated in different ways in your Bible. What mixed race? Because usually these nations only married within their race. But, well, for example, there was a mixed race between North and South Israel. Who were they? Samaritans. These were Jews that intermarried with the leftover Canaanites and some others. They were mixed. Um, Some have tried to apply this today and say we, we shouldn't have racially mixed marriages. But the Bible does not condemn that. We've had several in our church. I've known some very godly, racially intermarried families. So God is not rebuking that. And someone will say, but wait a second. It says that um, Israel was not to intermarry with other nations. That was, they were not to be religiously intermarried. Christians should not marry non-Christians. It has nothing to do with race. And uh, you say, what about Rahab? What about Moses' wife, um, Zipporah, that was from Ethiopia, think about that. He had an interracial marriage, and it went, which meant his children were mixed. Nothing wrong with that. The Bible doesn't forbid that. Get back to the text here. Guys will cut off their pride, like chopping down a huge redwood tree. There she goes, you know, timber. Then it uses this metaphor of an animal. Verse 7, 
Take away the blood from his mouth, the abominations from between his teeth. It's like they're, these nations are hungry, vicious animals, predators. God said, I, I can take care of them too. Like a master hunter saying, you know, no problem. I can, I've got a big buffalo gun. I can take them all down. But God uses metaphors like this. God's people compare it to lambs and sheep, but his enemies compare it to wild animals, lions, and um, wolves, even one place bears. God will defeat all of his enemies. But notice it says here, no more shall an oppressor pass through them I have seen with my eyes um, because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns. That could be meaning they return to God, not just to the land or give up. Uh, so whenever God punished enemies, sometimes some of them did defect like Rahab. She said, we're going to lose, so I want to go over to your side. That'll apply today. We can tell unbelievers, you're on the wrong side. Only way you're going to survive Armageddon is to get on God's side. Defect. Commit treason against Satan and pledge allegiance to the one true God. Verse 8. I will camp against my house. Now this is God speaking. Because of the army, because of him who passes by and him who returns, no more shall an oppressor pass through them for... Now I have seen with my own eyes. God will guarantee safety. He'll encamp around Jerusalem invisibly. And he would for any other nation that turns to him. Now it says here the oppressor. That means the aggressor. Such as the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and others that had fought wars against Israel. And this is the history of warfare. is aggression. Look at the 20th century. Nazis wanted Lebensraum. Room for living, and that meant to the east. It was right there in Mein Kampf, and oh, they fought these other nations, but the real goal was to go to the east and colonize the Soviet Union. They used to say, well, why shouldn't we? The British have conquered half of Africa and India, and the Americans took land from the Indians, and look at all their colonies. Why can't we? But wars of aggression are, are not allowable. People then will say, well, what about... Israel in the Old Testament, they took the land from the Canaanites. What about modern Israel? Took the land from the Palestinians. You could say God gave them a land grant. And the Canaanites committed crimes and sins worthy of death. But oppressors go for land and money and art like the Nazis just plundered all these other nations. Soviet Union did that with Eastern Europe as well and other places. So God says, I'm going to protect my house. That would be the temple. I have to be rebuilt. It wouldn't be torn down again until 70 AD, hundreds of years later. God promised them. So you see, there's rebukes and promises for God's people. Here's another great one. Verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, celebrate. Why? Your king is coming to you. He is just, having salvation, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt. Oh, the donkey. Someone tell me, when was this fulfilled? Duh. Who wants an easy one? When? Jesus on Palm, Sunday. Palm Sunday. Yes, because it's quoted in the New Testament. Applied to him on that very occasion. Now, celebrate. What do people celebrate today? Well, if they win an election, or if their team wins the Super Bowl, World Series... March Madness, whatever, they celebrate, dance in the street, even have riots, get drunk. That's nothing. God says you should celebrate because your true king is coming one day. Now notice it's not a king with a small k, but your 
big king, the king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that he fast forwards because we see that in prophecy. They'll talk about a near fulfillment and then a further one of which the near fulfillment is a, is a, is a type and then goes back and forth. And sometimes the rabbis and scholars today say, well, which is this talking about? Well, we know what this is talking about because we got the inspired interpretation in the Gospels. On Palm Sunday, how many of the Jews there recognize this? Uh, hold on. Let's get a council together, get the rabbis. There's something strange going on here. They're yelling out, Hosanna to the king. Blessed he that comes in the name of the Lord. That was a prophecy from, Dan, from David. And riding on a donkey. Can't you see him, you know, scratching their head, pulling their beards? That sounds familiar. Anybody know where that is? Zechariah? Maybe Zephaniah. But they missed it. They had the clues right there. Two people got it, though. Matthew and John, because they were there, and in their Gospels, they quote this and say it applied to Jesus. Imagine the apostles. Hey, Matthew. Yeah, what is it, John? This is it. This is it. This is fulfillment. And they wrote it down. Now, it's an unusual fulfillment of prophecy because it's an unusual prophecy. He was talking about tearing down these nations and God coming in vengeance. And here comes the king riding on a little donkey. I imagine some of the Pharisees said, he can't be Messiah on a little donkey. Why isn't he on a white horse? He's going to come on a white horse when? At the second coming. But here's all the crowd cheering and waving palm branches and quoting Old Testament scriptures, but how many of them really recognized what was happening? But I like to use a picture. Please don't laugh because it's like the crowd is saying, here he comes, here he comes, the great king, the king. And the king was supposed to come either in a chariot on a white horse with a big army and everything. And so everybody's craning their necks. It would be like going to a parade and the president or a conquering general is supposed to come and everybody looks, where's the king? And he comes riding in on a bicycle, a little child's tricycle, you'd say, Wait, he's, this doesn't fit. When Jesus came on just a little donkey, they said, he, he's supposed to be the Messiah, the king. So they cheered, but they wondered how. Well, he came in humbly, lowly, riding on just a little donkey. You ever seen like in Mexico in the Middle East, they get a little donkey and they sit like on the top of the hip and the feet are almost touching the ground and they use a little stick to hit it, and it's almost funny to see this big 300-pound man on a little donkey going along. And that's what it was with Jesus. Just on, It says a foal of a donkey, just a little one, a colt. It's because he's humble. But at his second coming, Revelation 19 says, on a white horse, the conquering general. Back to the other prophecies, I'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim. That was a northern tribe, actually a northern half-tribe. There were 12 tribes. One of them was so big, God cut it in half, Ephraim and Manasseh. And God says, I'll cut off the chariot. That's not so much punishment as if to say in the future, there'll be no need for war machines like chariots, the tanks of the day. God would disarm them. It says here, and the horse from Jerusalem, battle bow will be cut off. He'll speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river. Some say that's the Nile, probably the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. God says there's going to be great peace. 
you remember there are two interesting prophecies. One in Joel that says, blow the trumpet, the shofar, the ram's horn for battle, and turn your plowshares into swords. Go get their garden rakes and sharpening them and make swords out of them. And then you find another one. I just read it in my devotions in Isaiah, which says, turn your plowshares, your swords back into plowshares when the battle's over. You ever wonder what happened after World War II with all those thousands of leftover tanks and B-17 bombers by the thousands? I mean, there were 12,000 used in the invasion. They became scrap metal and so forth. And God says, you're not going to need all this. Peace is coming. And it says, he shall speak peace. Whenever you see a personal pronoun like that, always say, he who? was the king of the previous verse. He's coming. And we know the ultimate fulfillment of this is uh, Christ's universal kingdom. Came the first time. It's extended during the preaching of the gospel. He comes back again. Peace on earth. Whether you believe in a millennium on earth or not, you definitely believe in the kingdom of God being the last man standing. Verse 11. As for you also, because of the blood of your covenant, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Now, what does it mean, the blood of your covenant? Because your is not capitalized. Some think that it's talking about Jesus, the blood of the new covenant. I'm not sure. I'm humble enough. Logan, are you listening? I'm humble enough preacher to say, I don't know what this means. Remember, even Zechariah to say the angel, I don't know what this vision means. So having said that, I will move on. But it does say here, um, he will set the prisoners free from the waterless pit. In other words, they were drowning in a drought. No water. Verse 12, return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today I will declare that I will restore double to you. Double just like Job. Remember, he had more at the end than at the beginning that he lost. And so he says, return to the stronghold, to the fortress, you prisoners of hope. My mind goes back to about six months after I became a Christian, hearing a preacher preach with considerable gusto on that phrase, you prisoners of hope. I can still picture the guy. I mean, he not only took off his coat, he rolled up his sleeves and was hollering, return prisoners of hope. And boy, there were amens and everything. This was a Pentecostal church. He never did explain what the phrase meant. But it made good preaching. Prisoners of hope, return to the stronghold. Amen, amen. What does it mean? It means these were prisoners from verse 11. Prisoners of hope. They saw all these armies attacking and they said, how could we possibly survive all this? God says, you're prisoners, but you're still hoping. And I will deliver you. You see the application for us. We're outnumbered. Problems overwhelm us. Are we going to survive? God says, you're prisoners of hope, but I'm on your side. I will fulfill this godly hope. I will restore double to you. God's going to make it up either in this life and certainly in the next life. In fact, a hundredfold. For every tear that's shed, there will be a thousand blessings. Uh, double, remember the story of Job. Lastly, oh, not lastly, sorry. For I have bent Judah my bow, that's like bow and arrow, fitted the bow with Ephraim and raised up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Grace, and made you like the sword of a mighty man. Notice the different metaphors that are used in the Bible. An arrow, sword, sling, trumpet. We see that also in verse 14, 14 a whirlwind. 
These were not literally fulfilled, although they were arrows and slingshots used in these battles. But go back to verse 13. Daniel had predicted the rise and fall of a nation comparable to a goat, the empire of Greece. But he didn't use the name Greece. It was apocalyptic language and talking about these goats and so forth. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first use of the word Greece. Now, you have to get the... Okay, you hear me occasionally use a little Greek, a little Hebrew, maybe a little Latin. Want a little bit of German? Say, Yavol. <laughs> Sits in Laban. Now, you know what that means. The setting in life. The historical context. Sits in Laban was, this was 300 and something years B.C. Greece was beginning to arise as a great world power. And people said, where do they come from? Wasn't the Romans... That would come later. But you remember the Assyrians conquered by the Babylonians. They were conquered by the Persians. Persians were still in control, but they gave a certain autonomy to Israel. They didn't protect them, but now the Greeks are on the the march. But during this golden age, that was a golden age of Greek philosophy. Now you had Thales hundreds of years earlier, but this was a golden age, for example, of the three greatest philosophers. Now, did a pop quiz, would anybody be able to name them? There was Socrates, who was called the corrupter of youth and forced to commit suicide, but he had a prime student there, Plato. And then he had a prime student. Socrates? No, no, Socrates was his teacher. Who was his prime student? Aristotle. And Aristotle and Plato had their students gathering at the academy and at the lyceum. And then Aristotle had a prime student that was a young man that he didn't excel so much in philosophy, but they said he's going to be a great military leader. He's going to be great. Young man called Alexander. And he became Alexander the Great. And he said we can apply some of these philosophical principles. Greece will be the next world empire. And he is very smart. And so it spread and it conquered all these, it conquered the nations that God just said, you know, north of Israel and Philistia and down into Egypt and over there and took over the, the Parthian Empire and the Persian Empire and it spread very quickly. And um, this was the heyday of Greek philosophy, but remember what the Bible says about Greek philosophy. First Corinthians 1, the Greeks seek for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. The Greeks never really figured out the gospel. It was hidden from them. They were blind. But Alexander went on the march, but did not take Jerusalem, because God protected them, as we have just said. And then later, what would happen to Alexander? He died young. Um, This was a twist of fate, in quotation marks. It was a twist of God's providence. Why didn't he conquer Jerusalem? Because God says, no, not yet. It was one of those unusual turns of providence in warfare. It would have been so easy. But God said, no. It's just like earlier when the Babylonians were at the gate and God said, no, not yet. And so God allowed the leader, Rabshakeh, to hear a rumor that there was another army attacking them from the rear. And they said, oh, we better turn, we can take care of Jerusalem later. And so Rabshakeh's retreat went back there. The rumor was false. And so same thing here. And there were two key twists of providence that nobody expected in World War II, Dunkirk and D-Day. Half a million British soldiers with their backs to the sea and the Nazis in front of them. The Nazis could have wiped them all out 
or sent in the Luftwaffe to strafe them and kill them all, the UK would have had to surrender. All the Tommies were gone. And they didn't have the RAF up to, to speed yet, but Hitler did not attack them. Why? Kind of like Rabshak and Alexander God said, no, not yet. He could have won the war because America wasn't in the war yet. And with Dunkirk, neither were the Ruskies. And then you go to D-Day, Russians coming in from the east. You know I like World War II illustrations. And then you got the British and the Americans and the Canadian coming in from the west on D-Day. Um, I've been reading a lot about D-Day recently. In a way, the Nazis could have won, but where are all their tanks? Not at Normandy. They were up at Calais because they thought that's where it's going to come because why? Hitler is like an angel whisper, set all your tanks up there because I'm going to be sending my people down here. And so the Western Allies won on D-Day and then, of course, moved in and won the war. You take my point. What people said, that was a strange twist of fate. No, that was the hand of God. And it wasn't a miracle per se. And it wasn't just an, an unusual intervention. God's in control in every detail of every person's life, not just the big wars, but every little thing. God's in control of everything. We need to realize that. There's nothing fate or chance. We've already mentioned verse 14, verse 15. Lord of hosts will defend them. They shall devour and subdue them with sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if with wine. They shall be filled with blood like basins, like the corners of the altar. In other words, blood overflowing the altars in the temple. God will defend his people and devour and subdue with sling stones. Now, it's already been mentioned, arrows and swords and things like that. Bible does mention slingshots. Remember there's that group, I forgot, I think they were from Benjamin, that was so good, like David, they could sling at a target and hit a hairbreadth. You ever try that? That's pretty good marksmanship. I learned to do that. My dad grew up on a ranch and in his spare time looking after the cattle, he had a leather slingshot. And the leather slingshot there was like a piece of leather with a little leather cup in the middle. You put a rock there, tie one end of this string to your wrist, and the other one you let go and that's, that's like a bullet. My dad was awfully good. He taught me and I could actually from about 50 feet, I could hit a tree or a telephone pole. He could hit a flower. These, so that was a big thing. And David, of course, used a slingshot. Some were left-handed. Yet you, Sally Antry, Bible scholar. Thank you. How many of y'all knew that these left-handed men with slingshots? By the way, some scholars, I think Jack Hiles said they were left-handed because they had lost their right arm in battle. So, but they still would fight. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, we're almost finished tonight. Verse sixteen. The Lord their God will save them in that day as the flock of his people. They shall be like jewels of a crown, like a banner over his land. God saves his sheep, protects them from the wolves and other such animals, bears, lions. We see examples with David and then, of course, Jesus in John chapter 10. God protects his flock. We're his pets. And then we are like the jewels of a crown. We're his precious jewels on the crown of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lastly, verse 17, how great is now its goodness and then its beauty 
the Hebrew is such that it could either be its or his. The commentators vary and the translations vary. Is this referring to the goodness and beauty of Israel? Because he's already mentioned that. There'll be like crown jewels on a crown. Or is this his, meaning God? Well, in a way, they're both true. Because the Bible does talk about us being the jewels and his crown. And God crowns us with spiritual beauty. But also, God is the one that has its good, his goodness and beauty. Grain shall make the young men thrive in new wine, the young women. In other words, there will be material prosperity. However, you see that like in the millennium or in the near future time of peace uh, or the spiritual fulfillment. What God is saying is, I'm still king and I'm going to reward and protect my people. That applies to us today because we are his people. And thus we end Zechariah chapter 9, Lord willing, chapter 10 next week. Let us pray. I thank you for these wonderful promises and the illustrations from history. You kept your promises to your people. You also kept your threats to your enemies. Thank you that we are your sheep that you will protect. In Jesus' name, amen.